Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Full disclosure, today's episode is a bit of a tough one for us. Hearing the stats about startup failure rates, 70 to 90%, and how one, only one, investment drives returns for most venture capital funds is one thing. Actually experiencing it is, well, another. Today, we're talking about Nowadays, a tenacious portfolio company that recently wound down operations. In line with our ethos of learning, often out loud, I spoke with Nowadays founder and CEO, Max Elder, about what happened, where he is now, and what he's learned in the aftermath. And then we'll wrap up with a few minutes of additional analysis between Matthew and myself, where we discuss our reflections and the lessons we learned along the way. But first, here's Max with a little bit more of an introduction to the company he founded. Nowadays was a alternative protein startup. We were working on the cheapest and most scalable manufacturing platform for whole cuts of clean label plant-based meat. Namely, we made delicious and nutritious plant-based chicken. And what was the original sort of vision or insight that led you to start Nowadays? We started Nowadays in 2020 and the original vision was there are a plethora of headwinds for conventional proteins. There's flexitarian consumer demand that is new to the world that accounted for what still today is a majority of diets in the United States. Most people are flexitarian. We can come back to what that actually means because I have updated my views on this so-called diet. But nonetheless, a lot of consumers were occasionally choosing an alternative to meat. And when asked, most people say that that desire to reduce their conventional meat consumption or occasionally choose an alternative instead comes from a health motivation. And so we started nowadays to make delicious plant-based meats that had a clean label and unparalleled nutritional profile because we didn't see enough alternative protein products in the market that had truly clean labels. And that was definitely our area of conviction. I mean, the team and the timing, but also just this idea that sustainability premiums or climate benefits just weren't going to move the needle on consumers. You were going to need some kind of affordability and nutrition element, whether you call that selfish or not on the nutrition side, it's something that actually might tap into people's buying behaviors. Yeah. And for all food products in the United States, the top three purchasing criteria are price, taste, and nutrition. Sustainability is somewhere farther down the road, and that might be a tertiary benefit at best. But if you're not delivering a tasty product at a competitive price that has some sort of nutritional benefit, it's going to be really hard to grow a new product category. So you said nowadays was, not nowadays is. Tell me a bit about how things started to shift. Yeah, I'm still getting used to the tense. The shift has been a slow one nowadays in this past year hit a couple of challenges. Obviously there was a broader market challenge, a lot of questions around market demand for these products. I think it's, by the way, a very oversimplified narrative that's very easy for journalists to cover. In fact, I saw a few articles about nowadays closure saying amidst uh, declining sales or a weak demand, which just simply wasn't true. I think nevertheless, there's a media zeitgeist here that says that no one wants these products anymore. And that in influences the venture landscape and quite frankly, consumers as well. That was a challenge. The broader, quite frankly, like I'd say influx of alternative protein companies in the space was a challenge. It's a challenge to get distributors excited about a product when they're pitched every day by a new product in the category. And then we faced some technical challenges, scaling up our manufacturing technology. And in normal circumstances, those challenges are challenges that startups 
can overcome. But when you pair those kinds of challenges with just a broader macroeconomic slowdown and uh, certainly a slowdown of, of liquidity in the venture markets, it becomes challenges that are too hard to overcome. You obviously fought hard to combat those headwinds and overcome those challenges. What were some of the things that you did to, to do that? Too many things. We <laughs> tried everything, honestly. The foundational thing that we tried to do was pivot towards a channel strategy that we thought not only was more appropriate for the broader macro environment, but also likely more appropriate for alternative proteins today, which was away from a channel focused on consumers and towards broader institutional procurement plays in food service. And the primary strategy for us was make the pivot because we have a clear and differentiated health value proposition that will resonate strongly with school districts trying to feed millions of kids and those school lunches in K-12 public institutions in the United States are regulated um, by the USDA. And so you have to meet certain nutritional standards, unlike the standards in someone's mind as they're walking down a grocery store aisle on what they should put on their kid's plate for dinner tonight. And so that was a clear problem, a, a clear pain point that we could uniquely solve, not just uniquely in terms of all kinds of chicken nuggets, because nowadays made plant-based chicken nuggets, but also a clear differentiator for nowadays compared to a broader plant-based competitive set. So the pivot towards institutional procurement and K-12 was a pivot to a new channel that we actually made immense progress in in a very short period of time. The challenges that channel takes a year plus to gain traction, and there's some channel challenges there, but in general, a channel pivot was really important for us. The other was just changing our manufacturing strategy and figuring out a way to increase volume and lower costs without bringing manufacturing in-house. And we did that to mixed success, I say. These are ultimately manufacturing businesses. And one of the biggest challenges with running a startup in, I'd say, today's market is that you need to pivot early and often. And pivoting manufacturing and distribution take many, 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 many months. And they're the right ones and the structural ones, but you need to make them early enough that you can actually have enough time to reap the benefits. That's one of the things with the venture market and macroeconomic conditions over last year, plus the pressure on alt proteins. In hindsight, if maybe you had changed everything you know now back a year ago, maybe things would look really different, but it seems like your incentives and your mindset is such of selling the vision that you've sold and that you believe in and that you started the company based on. So there's some challenges and saying, all right, we'll just jump to plan C because plan A has been part of what you've started this all and blood, sweat and tears is down that path. Does that resonate? Is that what it was like? Or is it just a, a case of it's just hard to see looking forward and easy to see looking backwards? I think maybe a little bit of both. And I think hindsight's always twenty twenty, but I think I'm also, to be very honest, questioning the original theory of change, particularly around health. I have a deepened hypothesis around health as a key to unlocking broader market share for alternative proteins. While there are lots of concerns around health, I actually think that health is a little bit of a facade. It's kind of a symptom of broader narrative design from what I think of as primarily the conventional protein players to question the naturalness of these products, the wholesomeness of these products, and whether they're, for example, quote unquote, too processed. And so I think that the 
questions around health and alternative proteins need to be solved. I think we do need to have diverse value props in the market, and some of them do need to be health focused. But I'm not sure that early adopters are primarily focused on health. And I think that most of the research around health as a key purchasing criteria for flexitarians is a bit misleading. I'm beginning to worry that actually consumers want their conventional proteins to be healthier. They don't want healthier proteins. In other words, we all love bacon. We just want our bacon to not clog our arteries. That doesn't mean we want to eat plant-based bacon. And so I think that we need to be much more nuanced in how we approach conversations around health and nutrition as a value prop for consumers, particularly in the United States today. And then the other thing, we lie to ourselves a little bit. We over-index on health when we think about our food choices, but ultimately price and taste are much stronger motivators uh, when you look at actual consumption as opposed to asking people. And taste is certainly number one. And taste continues to be one of the larger critiques of the category. And there's a very real trade-off between designing clean label, health-focused, nutritious foods and foods that taste delicious, particularly in categories like chicken nuggets. And so we entered what I would call more of a junk food category in order to clearly differentiate with health. But there's a ceiling that you can get to without adding lots of ingredients that you wouldn't feel proud about feeding your kids. And so that trade-off makes it quite challenging when you're trying to launch an alternative protein company focused on chicken nuggets and demonstrating a very clear health value prop. But there are definitely better tasting chicken nuggets in the market. They're just really bad for you. You also mentioned some evolved insights on flexitarians and sort of how big that market is. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, it's research that I'm pursuing right now and trying to get a deeper, just more rich understanding of flexitarians. It's a big diet. It's hard to fully calculate, but between 25 and 45 year olds in the United States, it's by far the largest diet. And that's been a sort of meteoric rise. Like it, it wasn't the largest diet 10 years ago. And just the broader concerns are that one, it's a very vague diet. And so what that means is it's very large because it's all encompassing, but because it's so all encompassing, the insights that you can get around motivations, pain points around flexitarians as a consumer segment are broad and not as insightful and very hard to design, for example, a product that speaks to a flexitarian audience. And so on the one hand, the diet is interesting insofar as what I think it rallies a group of people around a common end goal, which is we should be reducing the consumption of these carbon intensive products. And it's an inclusive diet. It creates a lot of space for all kinds of people to be aligning around that intention. But the challenge is even that statement is somewhat inaccurate because people have lots of intentions and would say that they are flexitarian. So I think the key challenge is we need to either come up with more terms to more clearly define this broader segment and break it up, or just be a lot more uh, nuanced. If you read a news article or you even read primary research from a market research firm on a flexitarian diet and flexitarian preferences, Make sure you spend a lot of time looking at the definitions, questioning what this stuff really means. And I've yet to find, and this would be an open invitation for you or anyone to send me market research on flexitarians that actually gives meaningful and actionable insights. So what do you think in terms of all proteins or the transition that you want to see in the world? What, where do you land on that now? Is it still happening? Where yes. do you shine? <laughs> Light, yeah. What's exciting? 
It's absolutely still happening. And I think the easiest evidence of that is to look at the conventional protein landscape. Conventional proteins and their headwinds haven't gone anywhere. And in fact, a lot of conventional protein players are also struggling right now. Tyson just posted like a 400 million plus loss last quarter and shut down four plants in the United States. So there's a macroeconomic effect everywhere. And when you look at the challenges that conventional proteins face, they're getting worse. And so I think the question is not if, but when, and that means what is going on that can help accelerate these kinds of transitions. And the most exciting thing for me right now is a bunch of market shaping work underway. It's basically a group of people trying to effectively coordinate across a value chain. And what a value chain would typically take, I don't know, a decade to do without coordination, just different players along the value chain, negotiating, having different technological breakthroughs volume increasing, manufacturing, shoring up, et cetera. Like these value chains take a long time to mature, especially in food. This is like slow moving commodity manufacturing businesses. And there are some folks working on just massive coordination across a value chain to try to accelerate advancement using some market commitments, low interest loans, and then a complicated web of agreements across the value chain to try to get to an end state, which is namely around volume and price faster than the market would otherwise. So very excited about that. And the reason I'm very excited about it is because I think it has the potential to work, number one, but two, what it gets at is what I'm really excited about, which is higher volume, lower cost. I think that folks working on making plant-based proteins more commodities is what excites me. We're in the commodities business. Actually, the problem is most alternative protein companies are not. We are selling niche premium goods that are ground burgers and chicken nuggets. So we're selling these niche goods in commodity markets. And, and that's where I think we have hit a ceiling in terms of market penetration. So we need to lower cost and increase volume. And it's unclear exactly how to do that. And it would vary by product uh, category. But in general, I think these, these coordination efforts could accelerate what would normally take a decade into maybe two to three years. How about for you, Max, what did the nowadays journey teach you? Whether that's about being a leader, venture back startups, investors. It taught me so much. I think I've never had as high a velocity of learning as I've had running nowadays for three years. I think that the most interesting and meaningful learnings were actually learnings about myself, which I realize are less meaningful and interesting to anyone else. But I think I, the- Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. I, so the, I think the big thing for me was learning about making decisions that were all values-based and being a little divorced from outcomes, which was very much against my nature. I have always been a very outcomes-focused person. And when you're in a startup, as you know, outcomes, despite Herculean efforts, don't always materialize. And some outcomes are outside of your control. And that was very emotionally challenging for me throughout the journey and including its conclusion and the realization that if you commit to doing everything in a way that aligns with your values, then the outcomes don't matter or they matter less. What matters is that you did your best and you didn't compromise on your values. So I think that was a big um, takeaway for me. The other big learning that I think is relevant for anyone working in strategy, innovation, or just food systems more broadly is a emphasis on and clarity of where you're trying to go and a lot of flexibility in how you get there. And I think as an operator running a startup, you're so focused on the quotidian execution. 
Like ideas are cheap. Everyone has a million ideas for a startup. Every startup that exists, someone already had an idea for that. Like the way you create value is every day against all odds, waking up and building that. And you get so obsessed with the building and the channel strategy that these pivots are hard to make. They're hard to make early and often. And early stage companies need to fire people quickly. They need to find product market fit as fast as possible. They need to pivot a million times over until things work. And yeah, clarity on what exactly you're trying to do, where you're trying to go, what the end goal is, but then total agnosticism almost about how you get there would have freed me up to make pivots earlier and I think ultimately get to where we were trying to go. Do you, like, there's obviously cooks in the kitchen, your team, the voices on your shoulders, your investors, people you seek advice from. How did you strike that balance and any insights on who you would have listened to more or less knowing what you know now? Mm, I would have listened to myself more. I think the big takeaway is find, in particular investors, but everyone, find investors who are supportive of you and believe in you and have high conviction in how you think and high conviction in the decisions you make. The best investors that I ever talked to about our strategy or the best investors that I brought challenges to didn't tell me what to do. They asked me really good questions to help me get to the conclusion that I needed to get to on my own. And so I definitely would have listened to myself more. I think the other sort of challenge or just maybe insight for folks is that it took me a while to more deeply appreciate that there's no view from nowhere, that all of these questions don't really have answers, that there's a risk landscape and risk appetite that you need to get comfortable with for these kinds of decisions and to seek input, but to seek input fully aware of the perspectives, the biases, the seats that people sit on, the responsibilities that they have and really filtering input through those lenses. Maybe the last thing real quick here is I didn't do enough of this. And actually one thing I'm doing in my current role is creating more of a community and ecosystem to do this. But I started to always focus on other founders who have been through similar questions, challenges, pivots, and spending time with them. And one insight that I found was really useful was finding a community of founders, some of whom were running much later stage companies, some of whom were peers running similar stage companies. And then some of whom were eventually when I got a year or so under my belt, two years under my belt, who were earlier on in their journey. The benefit of the earlier folks is that you get to realize how much you've learned and how far you've come from wearing those shoes. The peers are terrific because they're dealing with very similar challenges in real time. And then the folks running later stage companies can give great advice, never on the decision, but on how to make it and who to listen to and how to trust your gut. So a deeper community of founders was very helpful for me. I wish that I had given them more time and prioritized more conversations with them. It was obviously super challenging, I'm sure, pitching and trying to raise money in the current environment and just dealing with investors. Do you have any feedback, whether that's for us or for investors more broadly from the founder lens? What would you tell the investor community? Ooh, Sarah, this is such a good question. And it's a great question because you're an investor asking it. And I think the the general feedback to investors is ask these kinds of questions. <laughs> so I'm grateful for it. I don't know the answer. I think one of the fundamental challenges with investing is the asymmetries of information in these kinds of relationships. And when you're fundraising, the asymmetry of information is 
that you know nothing about the decision making process, the status, the liquidity of the fund, whether they're raising, you know very little. And then when you get an investment, the investors all of a sudden have an asymmetry and know less about what's going on in the company. And that relationship is tough. And I think different founders have different attitudes about how to manage it. But one thing I think is beneficial for investors to do in these kinds of situations is to try to level the playing field a bit and try to be a little bit clearer on how much money is left in the fund. How many checks did we write over the past six months? How many checks do we plan on writing over the next six months? How are we focusing on our own internal portfolio as opposed to making new investments? And I think that investors just writ large don't do that. And it would be great, I think, to say, we're not making any investments over the next six months, or we've only made one new investment this past year, setting expectations and not wasting people's time, I think, which is the most precious of resources that all of us have, would be a great place to start. After my conversation with Max wrapped, Matthew and I decided to sit down and do a bit of reflecting ourselves. Hey, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Hey, Sarah. So we obviously invested in nowadays out of our fund one, wanted to just talk a little bit about our initial investment thesis and what happened and what we've learned. And probably most importantly, what we think we can do better or differently as investors. So maybe just a bit on the initial investment thesis and how we met Max. What's your recollection of the origin story there? Yeah. Yeah. Origin stories have a a short half-life in my brain, but the backstory is before Tenacious, there was Agthenic and we spent a lot of that time thinking about the future and helping other organizations think about the future. And in part of that work, we did some work with an organization called the Institute for the Future. And that's where we first came into contact with Max. It became clear that he was also someone who spent a lot of time thinking about the future. And when we found out that he actually was leaving to go join a company our interest was peaked immediately and, and it became clear that the future he had been thinking about was the future of protein. And yeah, we, we found a lot of intersection there. And as we learned more about what he was doing, that's where the intro to what would become nowadays came from. Yeah. And we've got investment thematic around sustainable protein. That's kind of animal, plant, cell. We're agnostic to different versions of that. When we've thought about plant-based protein, there's been a lot of hype in that space recently. And in particular, I think a lot of positioning of the sustainability credentials of plant-based protein as a driver for adoption. That's not something we've ever really thought was super compelling. How many consumers really buy based on sustainability? Um, And one of the things about nowadays that fit with our view of the world was what drives consumer behavior and nutrition and cost seem pretty high up on that list. And so as part of the original investment thesis, that was something nowadays was solving for and and was pretty compelling. And I think the idea that they had thought about, not just that those were good consumer signals, but also what might constitute product and product formulation and even IP, like how to build defensible scale. So I think those were some of the key elements that not just had us thinking differently or saying, yeah, absolutely, in, in terms of resonance of the vision, but that there were elements of implementation that we really liked as well, the kind of plain label, small number of nameable ingredients, things that we thought would hit the center of the dartboard in terms of really resonating with with consumers. Yeah, one of the things nowadays, they were in an increasingly crowded space and in a hot space recently, and I definitely heard 
investors or potential nowadays investors talk about, oh, is it just another nugget company, which is never really how we saw them, even though they did launch a plant-based nugget as their first product and did launch initially direct to consumer. Neither of those were the kind of ultimate vision we saw or the kind of core technology that that we saw as most compelling. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we did see? One of the things I was drawn to is for sure the idea of there being core parts innovation that were focused on food service and there being core parts innovation that were able to formulate meat, as it were, in a way that was adaptable to supply chain, able to be largely processed at ambient and just sort of addressed a lot of those kind of systemic level things, those areas that Max had explained that he had spent a lot of time thinking through and thinking about scale. So it is absolutely true that the go-to-market posture could easily have been interpreted as just straight D to C, but it was that kind of match preparedness that was initially more compelling for us. And so fast forward or or now where we're up to is in June, 2023, nowadays wound up operations, obviously really disappointing and and tough for a number of reasons, not least of which the team and and founders there. And of course, investors and, and LPs for those investors, thinking about what we might have learned and and what we could do differently. There's definitely been a few. And then coming back to that investment thesis, do we think it's true or not? So in terms of learning, I know one, for me, we talk about our pathways and how they help insulate us from too much sensitivity to market cycles, which I think is really true. We're systems thinkers. That's how we invest and how we think about the shifts in the food system. And yet something like a subsector's position on the hype cycle, so to speak, is pretty important. And when someone like nowadays finds themselves trying to raise in a market where the floor is falling out of the market generally and pretty much cut off at the knees in terms of plant-based protein because of public markets and crowded and hype and things like that has a pretty big impact on investor sentiment and a company's ability to raise. And just for us continuing to be conscious of where an investment or potential investment sits on that hype cycle and and what it's going to mean for downstream investor sentiment is definitely one of my reflections. Yeah, for sure. I I've been thinking about this a lot too. And the first actually is just empathy. And as someone who also, you know, has blown up decent proportions of other people's money and had to lay large numbers of people off, it was horrific just sitting with that with Max and hearing the story and feeling completely helpless largely. And and yeah, I just don't think there's anything really in the end that can prepare you for the kind of self-reflection that you inevitably go through in in a period like that. The other thing I've thought about too is generally in, in, in kind of startups and venture, we talk about timing. And we talk about all companies benefit from good luck, but but in reality, it's it's exposing yourself to to timing and the benefits of good timing. But in doing so, you equally expose yourself to the downdraft of, of bad timing. And so I think that's a you know, kind of second reflection is that at some points in market cycles, being out in market largely raising from a runway extension point of view just is is probably terminal. And so it's, it's tempting to think about failure as something different to success, but I actually think the the root is the same and and in the same way that you've got to expose yourself, put yourself in harm's way is a phrase that I often use in in that kind of sense of benefiting from good timing, but you're just as 
exposed to being taken out by a downdraft. And, and I think that there's a large element of that here too. Yeah. And I think the that's the external piece and, and some of the internal piece, another like lever companies have, and this is talked about a lot in current market conditions, but I think for investors, so important too, is do companies have a concrete plan, not only for the runway that they're raising for, but how they're going to extend runway and just the length that they would need to extend it for in tough markets. And what are all the levers, pleasant or unpleasant, that you might need to pull to extend that runway and probably further than you think and probably with tougher decisions than you've thought you've had to make and how soon can you make them. So things that are tropes in tough markets, but just seeing that come to play and how important it is to have that plan B, plan C and know when to to put it in place. And the role of the board too, which we weren't on in this case, but it's the founder for sure, but also the responsibility of the board and investors to be thinking about what are those plan Bs and Cs and how do you have the confidence to move to those second order plans soon and with conviction? Yeah, it's a good one. I like that. I Actually, I think in a self-reflective part, there probably isn't a plan B, right? Like I think there is only a plan A and a plan Z. And what the plans in between are collective loss aversion. And I think that we can own some responsibility there in terms of just the materiality of if it's not working, it's not working a lot, not a little bit. And it's it's just super hard to jump straight from A to Z, but in reality, the world probably is a little more binary in that way. Totally. You have this suspension of disbelief, right? As an investor and inventor to say, here's this upside. And I think there's so much benefit that comes from unwavering conviction in an outsized plan and an outsized performance. And that psychology is almost at odds of switching to plan C. And so finding that balance and as investors being ones that can have those conversations, even when they're tough, but yet like our psychology gets in our own way too. I think that's the the lesson for sure. And I think maybe a related one there, the learning is proximity to those strategic conversations. And it's often the case, roughly half the time, we will take a board role or an observer role. But I think making sure that we're building the right relationships where we don't have that direct strategic insight is part of that alternate view. As, well, as much as what I really love is contributing to strategy and it's really exciting and absolutely a core part of what we think we do well on the plus side, on the great connections, go-to-market strategy, innovative business model experimentation. But you have to be in, in the room at the time. And if you're not in the room at the time when the kind of other sorts of decisions are being made, you eventually get far enough down the road that your choices are far more limited. And I think that's something else that we can own as well is being mindful of how many degrees separated you are from where the sorts of decisions are being made that like significantly limit the future options available to the company. Yeah, totally. And then coming back to the original investment thesis, what are your current reflections on that core of clean label, nutrition focused, affordability focused, probably non-soy is another key element of their approach. Do you feel like we've proven out or debunked that as an investment area or where have you landed? Yeah, I think neither. It's an absence of evidence in, in this case on, on that part of the hypothesis. My instinct or, or whatever you want to call it is that those are still things that will resonate. The numbers will out, right, in the end, if it is possible to have high performing food products in terms of eating experience and, and nutrition and affordability 
that happen to be entirely plant derived, but formulated in a way that people are currently accustomed to consuming animal protein, then it'll just become part of what we eat. And I think that's as true today and tomorrow as it was when we originally started thinking about it. But you can't separate that out from the macro. You can't separate that out from the cumulative impact of a a lot of investment into a specific version of that sustainable protein future. And I think that those are the things that, you know, now and maybe even for a decent period of time are going to mean that there are challenges from a growth and challenges from a returns perspective in the plant-based protein category. Yeah, that's where I've landed as well, sort of inconclusive in this case, but we've never thought the category was plant-based meat that only mimics other meat and burgers. We've always thought it needed new innovations around formulation, around form factor and around channel and how it fits in the overall system. And so blended products and working with meat manufacturers, and there's plenty of room for innovation as the category evolves. And from a sustainability and nutrition and cost perspective, plenty more innovation to be seen, but jury's still out on what exactly it will look like. Given that you just heard summary and analysis from Matthew and me, I'll keep the usual roundup to a minimum today. But I do think it's worth circling back to a few things that Max mentioned, especially three big and interrelated lessons. First, the challenge of finding the conviction to pivot early, even when a pivot seems like it might run counter to a held value. Second, the evolving view that consumer signals are not as clear-cut as they seem. And finally, learning to trust his own decision-making. In a way, I think these three lessons work in a kind of virtuous cycle. Principled skepticism about what is seemingly common knowledge, backed by competent decision-making, can be the unlock to make big swings, like a pivot, really early. But the lack of any one of these elements upsets the cycle and it can become vicious. I so appreciate hearing the kind of candid insights Max shared today, and I hope his learnings prove valuable to others in the ecosystem as well. But for now, that's it for another episode of AgTech So What? Thanks again to Max Elder and Matthew Pryor for joining me today. And of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, tenacious.ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.